in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So God willing, today we're going to continue uh, studying in the book of Genesis. Uh, last week, we focused completely on one chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 45. Uh, this is one of the most critical and important uh, books, in, uh, sorry, chapters in the book of Genesis because we see the fulfillment of all the things that God had been preparing through the life of Joseph. Um, we see kind of at the end of this story how after Joseph had gone through such a long period of time of suffering um, that he is reunited again with his brothers. He reveals himself to his brothers. He invites his family to come and to live in Egypt. Uh, in their own special place called Goshen. Uh, by the end of the chapter, uh, Jacob is told that Joseph is still alive and they prepare to go on the journey to move completely everything of theirs to Egypt. Uh, and Jacob is longing to see his son Joseph before he dies. Um, we spoke from a spiritual perspective, how there's a lot of symbolism here about Joseph representing uh, the figure of, of the savior, of the Messiah. And he is calling like the, the church to come and to uh, have salvation, uh, you know, in the in the care of, of Joseph, because he is the one who is offering salvation uh, to his family. Um, it's a beautiful chapter. If you, if you missed it, I highly recommend that you go back and you listen to chapter 45, uh, yeah, chapter 45. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's one of the, the greatest chapters actually in the book of Genesis. Um, today. We're going to continue um, starting in uh, chapter 46. So in this chapter 46, uh, we read about how Jacob uh, and the other sons, the brothers of Joseph, they arrive in Egypt. So, so Israel took his journey with all that he had. This is from Canaan and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Okay. So, uh, of course, there was some fear. The idea of, of being uprooted from where you have lived for so long, this is from Jacob's perspective, and moving to a powerful nation like Egypt. I mean, Egypt is a pagan nation uh, with a pagan king. Uh, and, 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 you know, what guarantees does Jacob have that he will really be allowed to live uh, kind of independently, living on their own in the area of Goshen, and they would have everything that they need, and they wouldn't be forced to worship idols or to have a bad influence uh, from, their, from the, the, the Egyptian people on them or on their children or so on. So here God is um, kind of reaffirming and confirming everything that Joseph had said to Jacob, inviting him to come here. He says, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. You know, don't be afraid. They will, that you will be provided for there and be given everything that you would need. Um, God would protect Jacob's family, right? Even in the midst of such a place like this, where they are surrounded by people with a completely different belief system, a completely different moral system. Uh, and yet God is saying, I, I will be with you, right? I will go down with you to Egypt. And then ultimately the promise is, I will also surely bring you up again, meaning your place and your time in Egypt is not the final chapter of the story. You will be going there for a time and in this place you will be protected and you will be safe and you will be able to grow and thrive. But it is ultimately, there will come the time where I will bring you up again out of this place to lead you to your own nation, right? You can think of Egypt as like 
It was like an incubator for the Israelites because they went in as only around 70 people, okay? But when they came out, they came out as millions, right? Of people several hundred years um, after this. Uh, Origen, uh, he speaks about uh, how going to Egypt uh, represented the spiritual struggle. He says, uh, it is fit for us to contemplate quietly in what the Lord said to Jacob in the vision, vision, how he strengthened and encouraged as though he was going to war, saying to him, do not fear to go down to Egypt as though he was going to go against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. He is telling him not to fear them and not to be troubled. Why? I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt and I will surely bring you up again. We should not fear going down to Egypt nor confronting the struggle against this world. And so this is what he is saying is this, this period of time that he is spending there in Egypt represents the spiritual struggle after which now they can be uh, taken out of Egypt and inherit the promised land. This is the, the plan um, of, of God. So um, Egypt held a lot of promise uh, for Jacob and for his family. Okay? Let me ask you a question here at the end where it says, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. What does that mean? Okay, proves to, to, to Jacob that Joseph is alive. Well, he's going to know that he's alive when he comes to Egypt and he's going to see Joseph alive. So what does it mean for Joseph to put his hand on, on his eyes? When would you put your hand on somebody's eyes? Okay, when they're blind or also when what? When after somebody dies, right, their eyes stay open and somebody closes their eyes, right? So, so this is saying that Joseph is gonna essentially be there to, to you know, and, and present when Jacob, his father is, is dying, okay? So it's like Joseph will be with Jacob at the time of his death. Um, from a spiritual perspective, we can look at this also. Origen gives some commentary about this point. He says, the true Joseph, our Lord and savior, put his human hands on the eyes of the blind to restore for him his lost sight. And he put spiritual hands on the eyes of the law that blinded the spiritual minds of the scribes and Pharisees to grant them the insight, to open them the books and to grant them a spiritual vision and a spiritual understanding of the law. So in the physical sense, it's talking about how Joseph is going to be present when Jacob dies. In a spiritual sense, Joseph as a representation of the savior of the Messiah, right? That he is um, giving like a vision right? Uh, he's putting his hands on the eyes of the blind to make them see. He's putting his, his hands on our darkened minds in order to illuminate us, to make, them under, to make us understand, to make us understand the law, to make us understand his will, to make us understand his desire for us in our life, okay? So, so again, this figure of Joseph is, is very, very important. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and having received now this message from God, confirming in him that he should not be afraid and that he should be willing to go to Egypt without, without fear. It says, then Jacob arose from Beersheba and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So if you remember in the previous chapter, uh, Pharaoh had sent carts in order to help transport all of Joseph's family and everything of theirs 
to Egypt. So they are now riding in these carts for the return journey back to Egypt. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him. His sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. So there's going to be a short genealogy here that speaks about the names of all of the 12 sons, as well as uh, the, the, the kind of their descendants, right? To show and to make a record of who are the people who actually entered into Egypt and how many of them there were. This is important because we are going to contrast this, as I said earlier, with the number of people, the mighty nation that comes out of Egypt 400 years later at the time of Moses, right? Because essentially after this period of time, the next thing that we read about in the book of Exodus is the, the time of Moses and the exodus of all of these people. 400 years have, have passed at that point, and we see how the people were very, very great in number, right? And actually, because they were great in number, they were a threat to Pharaoh at the time. And the Pharaoh that was there at the time was not kind and generous like the one here. Um, and so here we kind of see how this all started. And it is only through the blessing of God, it is only through the work of God that he was preserving the, the, the family of Jacob, keeping the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in order to bring these people out, right? All the, all, everything up until this time, when we're reading about uh, the, the family, whether the family of Abraham, the family of Isaac, or the family of Jacob, everything has been very, very small, right? They're, they're not a nation. They're like a clan. They're like a group of people who are related together, a family, right? But the original covenant that God had made with Abraham was that he would be the father of many nations and that his descendants would number more than the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. And all of this, Abraham accepted it by faith. He didn't see the fruition of this promise in his lifetime, but he accepted it by faith that it would happen. Same with Isaac, right? And same with Jacob. But Jacob is now seeing the, the kind of the, the step of what you are now going to just stay uh, kind of on your own living in the wilderness. But now by going to Egypt, they're going to be uh, able to prosper. They're going to be able to grow much more rapidly than they had been before. So the genealogy, okay, Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. We read about them actually earlier in Genesis. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun were Sered, Elon, and Jaleel. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Penan Aram, and with his daughter Dina. All the persons, his sons and his daughters, were 33. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Aradai, and Erelai. The sons of Asher were Jimna, Ishua, Isui, Bariah and Sirah, their sister, and the sons of Bariah were Eber and Malkiel. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. 
The sons of Benjamin were Bela, Beker, Ashbel, Gira, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Ubim, Hupim, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, uh, the son of Dan was Hushim. The son of Naphtali was Jehaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalem. These were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore to Jacob seven persons in all. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's sons, wives, were 66 persons in all. Okay, 66 persons that, that have been counted here. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Okay. Um, there's actually several numbers here associated with the number of people who went to Egypt. Okay. Um, it first said there were 66 persons. Here it says uh, all the persons that went were 70. This is including the family of Joseph. Okay. And actually in Acts chapter 7, when St. Stephen is recalling uh, this event of um, the family of Jacob entering into Egypt, he says in Acts 7, 14, then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So in one case, it says 66. In one case, it says 70. In one case, it says 75. Okay. So in order to uh, reconcile these, we just have to realize that this has to do with who you are counting, how we are counting. Okay. So we know that Jacob has 12 sons, okay? And adding Jacob's grandsons and great-grandsons, the total was 66. That's the number that was given here in verse 26, okay? If you add Ephraim and Manasseh, which were the two sons of Joseph, okay? Then you get two more, so that's 68, okay? When you add Jacob, okay, and his wife, that's 70, okay? Uh, this, is, this is as the, the, the Hebrew version records 70. The Septuagint, however, okay, starts with Jacob's 12 sons, added Jacob's grandsons, okay, and great-grandsons for a total of 66, as we already said. Then it added the seven additional descendants of Joseph, who were probably sons of Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to Joseph's sons, right? So, so the Septuagint version actually goes beyond uh, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh and counts also those who were their descendants, okay? Um, also, the Septuagint omitted Jacob and his wife, which makes a total of 75, as, as St. Stephen mentioned in Acts. So if you, if, you, if you count it in different ways, in some cases you're counting uh, Manasseh and Ephraim's uh, descendants, in some cases you're not, in some cases you're adding Jacob, in some cases you're not, and so on. That's how you get these different counts, okay? But um, the, the, the short version of it is there's approximately 70 people, okay, uh, who are entering. And, and again, the significance of this is we know them by name. We know they are recorded as we know who they were. We know they were a small number. And we're gonna contrast this then with what is gonna happen in the book of Exodus 400 years later when they come out of Egypt, okay? Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. So, um, you know, we, we know that the, 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 the meeting, right, between Jacob and Joseph is a very emotional one. 
for the longest time, right? What had the other children of Jacob told him about Joseph? What is it that he had believed about Joseph for the longest time? They believed that he had, that he believed that he had died, right? And they believed that he had died by being mauled by an animal, right? They said this as an excuse to give a reason why, because they actually had sold him into slavery. So for the longest time, right, Jacob believed that Joseph, his son, was dead. And then he was told very recently, right, that by his sons that actually he was still alive. And now he's going actually to meet him, right? So there is this um, reunion that's happening between Joseph and his father. Um, that's a very heartfelt and emotional one. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. Like he was like waiting for this moment to see Joseph again. And now he feels like he can die because he has, he has achieved, he has realized his dream, which is to see his son again. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. Okay, so um, Joseph is speaking to his brothers now, um, uh, and, and he's saying what he's going to do. He's going to go tell Pharaoh that my family has arrived, right, and, and who they are. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? That you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians, okay? So Joseph had wanted uh, Pharaoh to allow his family to live in this region of Goshen, okay, from the, from the beginning, okay? And so there are several reasons for this, okay? One reason is that the, the land of Goshen is like right on the part of Egypt, immediately when they cross over the border in the direction that they were coming. So it's like the closest to Canaan. It's the closest to where they came from. They didn't have to travel far into Egypt. They would essentially cross into Egypt. And right there, that's the place where, um, where, where they would settle. Okay. Um, so, so in that sense, he's like, Joseph is like saying, even though you're entering into Egypt, but your heart is still in Canaan. Remember the promised land, the place where God had wanted the, the Israelites to dwell is in Canaan, is the promised land. This is just like a step toward that goal, right? Egypt is not your final home. You are here for a time, and then you will leave this place and you will go to the promised land. This is kind of, we can take it in a spiritual sense too. You know, like we are here on the earth for a time, for a limited time. And God is telling us, you are not here forever. You are here for a limited time. Benefit from this place, take what you need, live, right? Live in this place, like, like, like use this for your benefit. But don't imagine that this is your home. Don't imagine that this is where you're permanently going to stay. This is a temporary place. You know, I always use the example of if you have somebody who is traveling, right? Like we're in Houston. Okay, we're going to go on a road trip. We're going to go somewhere else. Let's say we're going to go to New York, okay? And as we are traveling, as long as we remind ourselves that we are traveling, then every step along the way, we are always, our aim and our goal is to eventually get to our destination. We might make stops. Like you might stop for gas. You might stop to go to the bathroom. You might stop to eat. You might stop for different reasons. You might even spend the night somewhere to rest, okay? But your goal all throughout you're doing this is you're always thinking, my goal is to get to New York. This is my travel destination. But let's say that somewhere along the way, because we enjoyed where we were so much, 
we enjoyed this intermediate city, we enjoyed like wherever we are, we began to lose sight and to forget the fact that we actually are traveling to New York, right? And we forget this. So because we forget, we think that where we are now is actually our home. Where we are now is actually where we are staying. And we begin to settle in this place, okay? Without realizing that this isn't really where we're intended to be. And this place is not as good as the place that we are wanting to go, right? So here's the same concept that God does not want the Israelites to believe that Egypt is like their permanent residence, right? You're here temporarily. You're here for a time in order for you to benefit from this place. And like I said, Egypt is to be an incubator for the nation of Israel to transform them from just 70 people to millions of people after a few hundred years. So just keep this in mind. Be prepared to leave again, right? You are not here forever. Another reason why they would dwell in this land of Goshen is because it is separate from the Egyptians. As shepherds, as it says here, uh, what Joseph is saying to them, um, uh, he said, uh, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. They consider that the, the, the occupation of being a shepherd is kind of like an unclean one, okay? So anyone who's a shepherd is considered like a subclass. So by you staying separate from the rest of the Egyptians, right, then you will be kind of a freedom and you will not be looked down on, you will not be ridiculed, you will not be mocked, you will not be mistreated because you are here um, separately, okay? Also by living separate from them, they wouldn't be as negatively affected by, you know, the pagan worship, the idols, the evil customs, the things that the Egyptians would be doing that are contrary to the command that God gave to them because they have to still preserve who they are, right? And this is another important point, okay? God told the, the Hebrews to go and to live in Egypt, not to become Egyptians. He told them to go live there and to maintain who they were, to maintain their own customs, to maintain their own traditions, to maintain their own beliefs, to maintain their own practices, to teach their children about their own faith, right? Even while they were living in this other culture, completely contrary and different from their own. And as long as they remembered that that is their identity and who they were, that they would be able to live apart from and separate from all of the other nations around them, right? But if they were to begin to forget that this is their identity and this is their custom, right? You can imagine conversations that would happen in a typical household among these people living in Egypt where the kids would be like, why can't we go and do, you know, some Egyptian custom, something the Egyptians doing? Why can't we go be like the Egyptians? Right, and, do that. and then the mom would be like, no, you know, we don't do this. And then, right, so this idea of maintaining identity, right, is very important. We are called to be citizens of heaven. This is, this is our citizenship. Our primary citizenship is citizens of heaven, not citizens of any other place, right? So even though we are living in another place, even though we are not in heaven now, okay, but we are called to live as citizens of heaven. We are called to live according to a certain code, according to a certain way of life, according to a certain law, according to certain principles, that even though we are surrounded by people who do not believe in those principles, that should not be a source of us to forget that our goal becomes, I wanna be just like the nations around me. I just wanna be like the Egyptians around me instead of thinking, no, I'm here for a time. I'm here for a temporary amount of time. And even if that temporary time seems like a long time, that time will end. And just as here Goshen, this land of Goshen is like on the border. It's like, like, like I'm just, I'm in it as much as I need to be in it in order to be safe and protected and then I'm, I'm leaving, right? 
The same is true with us in a spiritual sense. Like we live here on the world, but this world should not be our indulgence. It should not be our desire. It should not be our attachment. It should not be the thing that we want, right? We should look past this and say, God is preparing a promised land for me, right? These Israelites, they were there in Egypt for a temporary amount of time, but in their mind, there is an ultimate covenant that God is going to fulfill. There's an ultimate place that is far better than any other place, whether it be in Egypt or in any other country that God wants us to dwell in. And so we do not forget our identity. We do not intermingle and become one in culture and one in morality and one in faith with these people around us. Yes, we interact with them. And yes, we live with them. And yes, we show them love. And yes, we are here present with them, but that doesn't make us to be like them, right? We are different. We are different because we are called to something different. So that's chapter 46. <clears throat> then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, my father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possessed have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed they are in the land of Goshen. So he's telling Pharaoh, now my family has arrived. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Why even do they have this opportunity, right? Not every group of people that lived wherever in the world would come to Egypt and come and speak to Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, hey, can we please live? And can you give us a special piece of land for us to live? And because we are shepherds and we want to, we don't have place to live. What would Pharaoh tell them? He'd say, get out of here. You know, you're not, who are you? Like, I don't know you. Not every single person who is going to come to Pharaoh, Pharaoh is going to be like so generous and be like, yeah, I'll give you everything you want. No. The reason that Pharaoh is doing this is for the sake of who? Joseph, right? Joseph is the one who has favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. Joseph, it is for Joseph that Pharaoh is doing this. And because this is his family, right? It's like God is, is telling us that the benefits that we get is not because of who we are, but because of who we know. Like our relationship with Christ is what gets us the benefit. Our relationship with Christ is what brings us salvation. Our relationship with Christ is what brings us mercy. Not because we are great. You know, this family wasn't going to offer anything to the Egyptians. It's not like their GDP was going to increase now because this family is there and that they're going to do so great. It's not at all, right? They actually, you know, are, are taking up space, right? They're taking up space. Of course, at the time, no one could have predicted how much they are going to grow, right, to be the millions. But certainly Pharaoh would not have done this to anyone, right? All this favor came from their relationship with Joseph. Also look at um, the, 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 the last point here where he says, and if you know any competent men among them, make them chief herdsmen over my flock, my livestock. Like Pharaoh is giving them a job. It's like, if you have this talents and skills, come and work for me. Like come and do, like use your skills and your talents in the service of the king, 
right? In the service of the kingdom. And so, again, like God is, is telling us that he wants us to work with him. He, he, wants, he wants us to be in his service. He wants us to use the talents that he gives us to give back to him, right? To serve one another, to serve the kingdom of God. So here, all of this is happening. This is why we consider Joseph to be such this figure of the Messiah, like in the symbolic sense, that he is granting all of this grace, allowing all of this grace to be poured out on his family who did not do anything to deserve um, what it is that they are receiving. Then Joseph brought, uh, brought in his father, Jacob, and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. Okay, what does it mean when he says few and evil have been the days of the years of my life? so when he says so he's saying his days are few and his days are evil like so he considers 130 years this is a short like he has not lived as long as his fathers have lived and that his days have been full of evil things right see if you if you if you look back in the life of Jacob, all the stuff that we've read about him, okay? We know that he escaped from his brother who wanted to kill him after he deceived him. He, he went to a foreign land, okay? He lived in fear of his brother all the time. He lived with his uncle. His uncle deceived him several times. His uncle uh, lied to him many times, okay? Um, his children were very foolish and did many things to dishonor him, like what happened with um, the incident that happened with his daughter, Dina, um, and how the brothers, uh, they went and killed uh, like uh, the uh, Shechem, okay, which caused his reputation and the reputation of his whole family to be like essentially everybody hates them and wants to kill them. Like he lost his reputation. Um, his wife Rachel died in childbirth at a young age. Um, uh, his firstborn Reuben, he ha had sexual relationship with his concubine. Uh, his son Joseph, right, was taken from him and believed to be dead. Like Jacob lived a life of a lot of misery. Right, a lot of a lot of sadness, and this is what he's saying here. Like when he's having this conversation, and now Jacob is near the end of his life, and he's looking back at it, and he's saying, "My days have been evil, right? My days have been full of, of pain and suffering." And yet, despite all of this pain and all of the suffering, God used him to realize the promise that God had made to his fathers all along. Right? Only in the end did we see the outcome. Anyone who would look at the life of Jacob all throughout his life, you say. In what way is God really working with you? Is in what way are you actually fulfilling any kind of covenant at all, like that God has made, right? Just as when you would look at Joseph and you say, in what way are all these calamities that are happening to you in any way beneficial? Who is being served by this? Surely it was a mistake that God allowed your brothers to sell you into slavery. This could not have been. This could not have been the intention of God that he would allow this great calamity to happen to you. And maybe, you know, we would hear these, these, these thoughts in our own mind when we also go through such calamity, when we go through such painful circumstance that we think this is, must be a mistake. This could not, and what good could ever come of this? 
And, and Joseph, as we mentioned last time, his focus could have been completely on revenge and hatred toward his brothers because they are the architects of his own misery. But the first thing that Joseph said whenever he meets his brothers again is, do not be grieved in yourselves or be upset with yourselves at all because of what it is that you have done to me, because you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good, right? This is the, like the thoughts and the attitude of a man who truly sees the will of God in everything, even in the things that are against him, even in the things that others have done to him, that he's not even filled with hatred or rage or anger against anyone because he interprets their actions to be allowed and permitted by God for a greater good. And so Joseph is completely content to be used by God for the greater good at the expense of his own personal comfort. And this is another uh, characteristic of someone who is a servant of God, who really wants to serve God, is if our primary interest is personal comfort, then we will have a hard time serving God because very often the service that God calls us for uh, is not comfortable, is not comfortable physically, it's not comfortable financially, it's not comfortable emotionally, it's not comfortable socially, it's not comfortable in many ways because God asks us to sacrifice, right? Sacrifice to be in the service of God. So in the end, when Joseph would look back and say God intended it for good, in what way was it good? Because God used Joseph as the means by which the whole world would have been saved from famine, right? And, and how God elevated Joseph to that status, not just the whole world to be saved from famine, but the means by which that Jacob and his family could come into Egypt, which, as I said, is this incubator that they will then come out of it a mighty nation, right? So there was more than one benefit that God used Joseph to achieve. I will physically save those who are starving, and I will spiritually save as well, because it is this nation the nation and the family of Jacob, through whom will come the Messiah who is to be the savior of the whole world. So Joseph, thinking in his mind this way, that the greater good is for God's will to be done, and so I am thankful that God used me for the service, this is what makes Joseph to be joyful, right? But if, if you look at it from the perspective of personal comfort alone, Right, just personal comfort. Like, like, would have been the thing that would have given me the greatest personal comfort. That's the thing that we want from God. Then you look at the life of Joseph and you say it was a waste. You know, like how much time did he spend suffering in his life? How much time did he spend, uh, like, um, you know, being hated by his brothers? Right? How much time? So many years. Right? So if 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 we think that because we are believers that that means that our life should go in a certain direction, which is full of only comfort and, and good things and, 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 and things that we enjoy, right? Then we might be disappointed by that, okay? But if we have instead uh, a, a realization that the work of God is not for free, that the work of God has a cost, right? And it is those who are willing to pay this cost that are willing to be used by God are the ones that experience God the most. You know, they, these are the people that experience God the most are the ones who are willing to sacrifice their lives for God. And when I say sacrifice life, I don't mean like to physically die necessarily. I'm talking about to give up our desires, to give up our will, to give up what we would have most wanted. Right. You know, what kind of social life did Joseph have? He didn't have any social life. What kind of financial 
life? Like, what kind of like luxury did he have? He didn't have anything all throughout this time of, of suffering that he had. He didn't, he didn't have anything. He was falsely accused. He didn't have any friends. He, you know, so for him to, to, after all of this, to look back at it and to say that God used it for good and that even now he is interpreting everything that is happening as good without any regret, without any sadness, without any resentment or bitterness toward God, to his brothers, to anyone, that he's, he believes that every sacrifice that he made was worth it because the greater goal was the will of God to be satisfied, the will of God to be fulfilled, not my personal comfort to be fulfilled, okay? God could have chosen to give Joseph, you know, a luxury yacht to live the rest of his days just with like, you know, filthy wealthy and having everything he wants. Isn't that possible? Of course it's possible. But we, but, and maybe from the perspective of the human, the human uh, perspe perspective, we would look at that and say, that was a life well lived. That's a, that's a successful life. The person who has billions of dollars and living it up, like however they want to live. That's the life we wish, right? But from the perspective of the work of God, that is a wasted life. That is, that is a life lived for the self instead of a life lived to give to God according to his will, whatever he wants. If God calls me for a service, then I cannot turn down that service. If God calls, even if that service means pain, even if that service means discomfort, even if that service means that I don't get to do what I wished, right? Because maybe the path God wants me to walk is a different path than the path I've chosen for myself. So we have to be open to realize that the true fulfillment in life is not by attaining physical things and attaining ranks and position. The true fulfillment in life is to do the will of God. And to those who willingly give up their own lives in order to do the will of God, God has a special reward and gift for them. The gift of himself, right? Not luxury, the gift of himself. The, the, when when um, God was speaking to Abraham, he said to Abraham, I am your exceedingly great reward. What reward can compare, right? What reward can compare by having the, the experience of the intimacy with God at all times is a greater reward than any other gift that can be given by anyone. Even any other gift God can give to us as a reward here, you have a million dollars. But that's, that's, that's not a reward, right? That's a temporary reward that perishes. The reward that God gives is the gift of himself. To truly experience the presence of God, the love of God, the peace of God, that is what our desire should be. Because in the end, why do people seek luxury? Why do people seek money? Why do people seek anything? It's because ultimately they want to experience joy and peace. We believe that having that yacht is going to make me joyful and peaceful. I'm going to get it. We believe that we are going to enjoy something, that something is going to bring me enjoyment. So I seek after that thing that brings me enjoyment. But if you ask those people who have attained those things that they believe would bring them enjoyment, and for those of us who have attained anything that we believe that one time would give us enjoyment, and then after we attain it and we enjoy it for like a few hours and then we don't enjoy it anymore. The, 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 the enjoyment has kind of died. The enjoyment was not permanent. The enjoyment was temporary and fleeting. And we begin to look again with longing eyes for something greater to enjoy again because our, our desire for enjoyment, our desire for fulfillment, our desire for peace is, is, is not been satisfied. God comes and he fills all of this with the ultimate enjoyment, with the ultimate, ultimate sense of purpose, with the ultimate sense of joy and peace and comfort of himself that is not dependent on any physical object or any status or position or rank, but simply by his presence. Those who are willing to give up 
right, their own comforts, their own worldly desires in order to fulfill the calling that God has given, those are the ones who truly experience what it really means to be joyful, what it really means to have love in their life, what it really means to be at peace, because they receive it directly from God and their experience with God, not through some object or creation. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh, which seems kind of strange, right? Because Pharaoh, is, he's not a believer. He's, he, doesn't, he doesn't believe or worship God, okay? That's Joseph who believes in God and worships God, right? And, 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 and Pharaoh is greater than Joseph in rank, right? Pharaoh is the king, the number one. Joseph is the number two, okay? So why would Pharaoh, you know, allow Jacob to bless him, right? He sees that there's something in Jacob that's different, right? He identifies that there's something special about him. And even though he was an old man, okay, um, and even though he doesn't share his same faith, but he sees that this man was filled with some kind of a grace, some kind of a power, something was with him, which is the presence of God with him, that made him to want to be blessed by him and allow himself to be blessed by him. When we live according to the principles of God and are filled with the grace of the Holy Spirit, we do not have to live like the rest of the world. And even if the rest of the world does not believe what it is that we believe, they will see in us there is something inexplicable, unexplainable that is different from them. And they would wish to attain such a thing, right? They would wish, they would want to attain what it is that we have without even understanding what it is, without understanding what, what it is that was different right, about us. This is if we are living faithfully according to the work of the, the, the Holy Spirit in us. So they might uh, look at us and despise us because they feel like we are, um, you know, the, the, you know pers essentially persecution, right? Like we might be persecuted in the world because of our beliefs. But to someone who is truly living according to the Christian principles, um, even as someone is being persecuting us, we see that they can also be converted and transformed. We see this in the history of the Coptic Church, right? Like when we read about in the Synaxarian, you know, we read about like certain people, um, like Arianus, right? Arianus is always the bad guy. In almost all of the Synaxarian entries, there's Arianus and then whoever else he's going to kill, right? Arianus is always the bad guy who's torturing a Christian, who's doing something to them, who's like, you know, burning them, like throwing them in like hot lava and cutting them to pieces and doing, in every story, there's like something like that's happening. And then ultimately, Arianus himself, he converts and becomes a Christian, right? After seeing so many like instances of people whom he, who just, he despised and whom he hated and whom he killed, after seeing that even after he's doing all this, all this to them, they do not hate him in return. They do not try to destroy him. They do not despise him. That even though he is, uh, you know, has the power to, to inflict suffering on them, but those people, they don't stop. They don't, they don't stop believing. They don't stop coming. They, they, they voluntarily come on their own and they say, I'm a Christian, right? How could such a person do such a thing unless what they truly believe is authentic and real? And so eventually he himself, Arianus, believes as well, okay? So, so even those who hate Christians and hate the Christian faith and hate those who profess Christianity and hate the moral system of Christianity and hate everything about Christianity, even those people, if we 
truly are a light to the world, as Christ called us to be, even those people can be converted. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, and the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his fathers, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. There was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So even though nobody has food, like even the Egyptians don't have food, like that's how severe the famine is. But yet Joseph prepared bread and, and gave bread to his family. Like, like, like their family was treated better than even the Egyptians themselves. Okay. And so here, Joseph, he's collecting all the money. Like he's, he's collecting the money that people have paid for the grain everywhere. And he's bringing it to Pharaoh. So here's, here's all the money that has been paid for all of the grain uh, that people are buying from us. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us bread for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. And Joseph said, give your livestock and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So now that there is no more money, now trade with your livestock. Give all of your livestock to Pharaoh and he will give you grain, which is what happened. Okay. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Like all we have left is our land and ourselves. And so they are going to sell their land and they're going to sell themselves as servants to Pharaoh so they can eat. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, buy us and our land for bread? And we and our land will be, your servants of, will be the servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. <clears throat> then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field, because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's, right? Everything, everything now became Pharaoh's, even though their own selves. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the border of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate the rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is the seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households, and as food for your little ones. So he gave them seed. He told them to plant so that they would have food in the future and, and also to give a part of that seed or a part of that crop back to Pharaoh so there would be food that is still stored up for Egypt. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. 
And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. So remember, he came when he was 130 years old, when he first met with Pharaoh. And now 17 years have passed, um, and he is now to die at 147 years old. When the time drew near that Israel must die, remember Israel is Jacob. He called his son Joseph and said to him, Now, if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. This was like a custom for making a promise. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Um, so this translation of Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed in the Septuagint version, um, it's a little different. Um, in the Septuagint, it says, then he said, swear to me, and he swore to him, and Israel did obe obeisance, which, which is bowing, upon the top of his staff, which is the staff of Joseph, okay? This is actually the same thing that St. Paul says to the Hebrews. In Hebrews 11.21, it says, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff, which is the staff of Joseph. Um, so he is like nearing the end of his life. Okay, and he's leaning on the staff of Joseph. Okay. Um, what does this represent? So J Joseph represents Christ, and Jacob represents the church, right? The people who are the children of God, the ones who are being blessed, right? So this is, is uh, like saying that the church, it's like bowing before the royal scepter of Christ, like as a, as a sign of of respect and honor and reverence and thanksgiving and obedience, right, to, to Christ. Okay, this is the last chapter we'll get to today, 48. In this chapter, we read about Jacob, who before he dies, he blesses the sons of Joseph. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. So knowing that his father Jacob was about to die, he wanted Jacob to bless his oldest son, okay, which is Manasseh, okay, to be blessed by the right hand of Jacob. So it was always seen that the right hand represents like blessing and power. So the one who is to be blessed with the right hand would receive the greatest blessing. And it was always the, the eldest son who was the one to receive the blessing. Okay? Um, this is, if we remember the situation with Jacob and Esau, right? Esau was the firstborn, right? He is the one who was supposed to receive the blessing from his father Isaac. But instead, Jacob deceived him and received the blessing himself. Okay? So here also Manasseh, Joseph wants his oldest son, Manasseh, to receive the blessing from the right hand of Jacob. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. This is the, the place where he had the vision of the ladder. You remember when he was traveling, he, he, he dwelt in, uh, he slept in this place called Luz, which he renamed later to Bethel, which means the house of God. And he had a vision of the ladder with angels going up and coming down on this ladder. 
Okay. Uh, so he said, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, okay, in the land of Canaan and blessed me. This is also where he wrestled with God. Behold, I will make you, this is what God said to him, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. So Jacob here is making clear what? That the blessing that he gives is not of himself. It is not his own blessing that he is about to give, but it is actually a blessing that he received from God. The blessing of being fruitful, of multiplying, becoming a multitude of people, becoming a powerful nation. All these blessings is something not in of himself, but something he received from God. And so now as he has blessing the next generation, this is the blessing that they are receiving, which is the blessing that he himself received. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt. Remember, Joseph was given a wife, okay, by Pharaoh. So when Joseph became uh, second in command, um, Pharaoh made him to be such. He gave him a wife, Asenath, to be his wife. And so he had these two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, from her. So they are half Egyptian and half Hebrew. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. So he is like adopting them as though they are his own sons. Remember, we had spoken about this before. How many sons did Jacob have? Twelve. Okay. How many tribes were there? Twelve. Okay. Is there a tribe of Joseph? There's no tribe of Joseph. Hmm? How many tribes? There was 12 tribes. Okay. But so, so what's happening here is what? If you remember, uh, I mentioned it earlier. Reuben, who is the eldest son, right? The firstborn son of uh, Jacob. Okay. Because he is the firstborn son, he is the one who receives a double portion of the inheritance. So what's supposed to happen is when the father dies, all of the sons distribute the inheritance, except the firstborn gets double all the others. That's what's supposed to happen. But because Reuben sinned against his father and he had a sexual relationship with his concubine, he lost the status of the firstborn. Okay? And so what happened was the, the, the next firstborn, so, okay, how many, how many women did Jacob have sons with? Four. Two of them were wives, two of them were concubines, okay? So when Reuben, who was the firstborn of Leah, which was his wife, when he sinned, he lost that status. So who is the next person to receive the status? Well, there's another firstborn from another wife, and that's Joseph who was the firstborn son from his other wife, Rachel. So Joseph is now going to receive a double portion of the inheritance. What does that mean? It means that each of his two sons are now actually going to become a tribe. So it's as though Joseph, even though he doesn't have a tribe according to his own name, it's like Joseph has two tribes because the tribe of Manasseh and the tribes of Ephraim, even though they are not direct sons of Jacob, it is as though they have become sons of Jacob. This is why it says here, they shall be mine. This is the blessing that Jacob is giving to Joseph. They shall be mine. Okay. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. 
okay? So, so this explains why when we speak about the 12 tribes, okay, the, the 12 tribes or the 12 territories that we speak about, you, you would have 13, but Levi doesn't count because Levi doesn't have their own land, right? So if you look at a map that shows all of the territories of where all the tribes live, you will see that there's a tribe of Manasseh and a tribe of Ephraim, and there's no tribe of Levi. So it's still 12, but it's not the same as the 12 sons because of what's happening here. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Padan is the place that he lived with Laban, his uncle. That was where that was. Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a little distance to go to, Eph, uh, to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. This is, this is speaking about when Rachel died while she was giving birth to his youngest son, Benjamin. Okay. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so they couldn't see well. Okay. Uh, then Joseph brought them near to him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees and bowed down with his face to the earth. Okay, so, and so look at how Joseph is going to present them to Jacob. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand. So remember, the eldest son is supposed to get the blessing with the right hand. So Joseph brought Manasseh here, like as though I'm Jacob. He brought Manasseh here. This is my right hand so that I could put my hand. Jacob could put his hand here and his other hand here, his left hand here. So he would bless both of them. The eldest son on the right with the right hand. The, eld the, the, the younger son on the left, right? It was Ephraim with the left hand. That was what Joseph wanted, okay? Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head. So he did this. He put this hand over like this, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head. So he, he, he did this. He crossed, his, he crossed his hands like that, okay? Guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Okay, so even though Jacob could barely see and he didn't know them, right? Um, and, and even though Joseph presented them in the way that he did, and it would have been natural just to bless them like this, and even though Joseph presented them in the right way, which is that Manasseh is the eldest one on the right hand of Jacob, okay? But um, Jacob chose to cross his hands and to bless them this way, okay? I'll speak about that in a second. And he blessed Joseph. Now, you notice even how it says, like, this is the blessing for Joseph because it's coming through to his sons. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into multitude in the midst of the earth. So again, this is a blessing that is coming from God, 
he names Abraham and Isaac, which represents that their uh, heritage is the heritage of Abraham and Isaac, okay? And that the promises that were given to Abraham and Isaac is also a promise to them, okay? And they would multiply and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him because that's not what he intended. He wanted the, the firstborn, Manasseh, to get the blessing of the right hand. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so my father, for this one is the firstborn, putting his hand on Manasseh. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know my son, I know. He also shall become a mighty people and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So actually it is through the spirit of prophecy that Jacob was guided by God in order to bless these two children the way that he did. And knowing the, what is going to happen to the nations of Manasseh and the nation of Ephraim, that, that Jacob blessed them the way that he did, okay? Um, how do we know or what exactly happens later to Ephraim and Manasseh? So um, when the first census was done later, this is much later now, like hundreds of years later, the time of Moses, um, when Moses does a census of the tribes, okay? Um, the tribe of Ephraim, Okay, it says the number of names from 20 years old and above who are able to go to war were 40,500 in the tribe of Manasseh. Okay, uh, or sorry, sorry, in the tribe of Ephraim, while those in the tribe of Manasseh were only 22,000. So the tribe of Ephraim, even though he was the younger son, he had like almost double the number of, of like uh, males who were able to go to war. So he was, it was larger in, in size, okay? Just as here Jacob is saying. Um, also, the tribe of Manasseh was a divided tribe because when the Israelites were crossing the Jordan River to enter into the promised land, half of the tribe of Manasseh dwelt to the east of the Jordan and the other half dwelt to the west of the Jordan. So that's why we, we refer to them as half tribes, like uh, like, like uh, 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 um, no, I'm not sure about that point, but yes, half of them were on the east and half of them were on the west. Okay, so for that reason, they were like divided, right? So they were weaker than the other tribes who were all together. So if there was like an attack that would happen on one side of the Jordan, the other side wouldn't really be able to come and help them so easily, right? So they were physically weaker because of that. Um, also, because they were on the east side of the Jordan, the east side of the Jordan is where all of the enemies of Israel were. And so there was a lot of influence from the pagan practices of all of the nations on the tribe of Manasseh. Okay, so that, that led them to actually be exposed to more idol worship than the other tribes. As to Ephraim, they were a very strong tribe. Okay. And actually so strong, in fact, so when the kingdom split, the kingdom of Israel, at one point it split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom were made up of 10 tribes and the southern kingdom made up of two tribes. The southern kingdom were the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So all other 10 tribes were in the north, but because Ephraim was such a strong tribe, 
they actually referred to the entire north as Ephraim, right? So you'll find in some places in the Old Testament when it refers to the, the Ephraim, what it's referring to is the northern kingdom, okay? That's how strong uh, that tribe was. The church fathers, they speak about how the, the, when, when Jacob crossed his hands like this to bless, right, that this shape of his hands represents like the mystery of the blessing that we receive from the actual cross of Christ, right? It's like, it's like, the, it's like a symbol of, of, of blessing, right? And we also receive the true blessing from the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, uh, they also speak about how preferring the younger son, Ephraim, to the older, um, refers to the idea that when, when you compare the first Adam to the second Adam, right? So the first Adam was Adam, right? He's the one who fell into sin in the paradise and, and as a result was ejected from paradise and, and sin entered into the world. Christ is referred to as the second Adam, right? The first Adam resulted like his actions caused sin to be entered into the world in corruption, whereas the second Adam, who was Christ, resulted in healing and restoration and resurrection. First Adam brought death, second Adam brought resurrection. So in that sense, the second Adam is the younger because he came after, right? So the church fathers speak about how um, the idea of blessing the younger, right? And, and the, the, the kind of like the, the good things that came from the younger, like corresponds to or refers to the idea of the second Adam being higher and more important than the first Adam. Also, we see that the idea of the physical uh, birthright is something that's not uh, set in stone in the Bible, right? Uh, we see, for instance, that God honored the, um, the, the blessing of Abel, right? He looked favor on, uh, with the sacrifice of Abel, but not Cain, even though Cain was the older brother. Um, we also see how Jacob is the one who received the blessing versus Esau, who was his older brother. Um, also, we see how Isaac became the son of promise, even though Ishmael was 14 years older than him, and he was already alive, and yet Isaac is the one who received the blessing. And in the genealogy of Christ, when we read about it in, the, in Matthew, you see that in the genealogy of Christ, there were a lot of people who were not the ones who should have been receiving the physical birthright, and God used them as his uh, ancestors. God, they were his, the, the ancestors of Christ. So the idea that God is not honoring the physical birthright as much as he is honoring the spiritual birthright. Okay, so it's not, God is not caring so much about physically where does a person come from or whose family are you a part of. He's caring more about your, your heart, cares more about how you choose to live, about your, your love for him and not through some like something that's out of your control, which is how you're born. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel will bless, saying, may God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Here he's speaking about a plot of land, okay, that he had uh, received in Canaan, okay? Um, this is actually uh, 
mentioned in uh, in the encounter with a Samaritan woman, when Christ is speaking about Samaritan woman, that he he Jacob received this uh, plot of land, okay, uh, from from an Amorite, okay. Uh, in John chapter four, in the encounter with a Samaritan woman, it says, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sikar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. This is what we're referring to here. Jacob had received this land, all right? And so he gave it to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary from his journey, sat thus by the well. So this, this idea of Jacob's well being there because it, was, it belonged to Jacob and that he gave it to Joseph, this is what we are reading about here. Any uh, any questions before we conclude today? Yes. Why, why did God choose the tribe of Judah to descend from? Uh, um, as opposed to the tribe of... We'll get to um, all of the explanations of the tribes uh, in, I can't remember if it's 49, right? Yeah. So it, just stay tuned to that, where we'll talk about essentially all of the prophecies about all of the tribes and why and all of that. Yeah. Yes. That's what I said. So, so, um, so his kids, so it seemed that, it seemed that he is like blessed through them, right? So when your kids receive a blessing, it's like you are receiving the blessing. So when I have two kids that are receiving uh, a tribe according to their name, it's like I have received. This is why when, uh, where is it? Here, when Jacob was blessing uh, the kids, See here, it says in Genesis 48, 15, even though he is blessing the children, it says, and he blessed Joseph, right? Because it's seen that any blessing that they receive is actually a blessing for Joseph. So really, Joseph had two tribes, but they were named after his children instead of being named after him. But they're really his tribes. Because again, he got the double inheritance, right? As compared to the other brothers. That comes from the, the like in the Old Testament. So here, we, we're not yet in the law of Moses, right? So the law of Moses hasn't been written yet. But when we get to the law of Moses, okay, and it's specifically in the book of Leviticus, which explains a lot of these, these laws, that was actually a command of God. God commanded these rules about birthright and, and inheritance of the eldest and all of that. So this is an example where there are certain practices that were known and understood that God had commanded the people that maybe wasn't directly recorded in the scripture that was understood by tradition um, that only later became written down in a, in, a, in a code of laws that we can then refer to, right? Like for instance, even the idea of offering a sacrifice, right? So we see, we see the patriarchs here in, in the book of Genesis offering sacrifices, but there was never a command to do so. Like there was never, there was never any command that we read about in the scripture that says you should offer a bloody sacrifice to God, right? Right. The first sacrifice was Abel's. And actually, when we go back and we say, well, why is it that God, why is it that God accepted the sacrifice of Abel but rejected the sacrifice of Cain? You know, the kind of sacrifice that God wanted was a, a sacrifice of an animal, right? But it was never recorded. 
that that was the case, but it was understood. Somehow God communicated it to the people, and it was understood from the very beginning. Noah offered a sacrifice. Abraham offered a sacrifice. Uh, Jacob offered sacrifice. So everyone is offering sacrifice. So later on, uh, at the time of Moses, all of these laws are like codified in a formal way that then can be referred to. But as of right now, it's just understood. God communicated it somehow. We don't know how exactly. And it was passed on from generation to generation that this is the expectation of God. This is why when we speak about the oral tradition in the church, that there's a lot of things that God is commanding us to do that's not explicitly written in the Bible, but it's something that God had communicated it to the apostles and so on and was established in the church and, and we practice. Yes. The, the idea of the Trinity is from the very beginning. The idea of the inheritance of the Son uh, from the kingdom of the Father uh, is, is established from them. Even in Genesis 3, there's this idea of descendants and how the, des the descendant of Eve will bruise the head of that serpent. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's, that there's always that explanation of inheritance and birthright from the very beginning. Thank you. Any any other questions? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day and for every blessing you give us. Help us, O God, to continue to learn from all the treasures of wisdom that we find, O Lord, in your holy books. Grant us, O Lord, that even when we study a book as ancient as the book of Genesis, that we find many examples and many important lessons that we can apply in our lives today. Teach us, O God, to be like your servant Joseph, who was full of love and compassion and forgiveness. Teach us, O God, to sacrifice of ourselves, of our time, of our things, back to you, O Lord, and so that you might use us, O Lord, for the furtherance of your kingdom. Guard us, O Lord, in all things. Protect us and save your people, O Lord, by your mighty right hand. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit, be with you all go in peace, the peace of the Lord.